What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of the Faithful Fanatic Show. As always, I'm your host, Dylan Davis. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Matt McGinty. Give him a follow on Twitter at Matt underscore McGinty. And of course, can't forget about my co-host from Turf Talk, Scotty. Give him a follow on Twitter at Scotty Drowned. And today we are beyond happy and ecstatic to welcome Mr. Mark Zumoff to the show. Zoo, what is going on? And thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. I'm just impressed you would have me on on a Monday after the Eagles were, well, you know, they weren't real good. So the fact you're having me on and you're not talking about the birds, but you have me on is uh, I don't know whether to be flattered or think that you just want to avoid the Eagles altogether. I think it's a little bit of both, but I think it's more so we just need some positivity on the timeline today rather than Eagles Twitter. I'm your guy. There we go. Well, first, man, before we get into to your career and some Sixers talk, I do got to ask you, how's retirement been? Um, how have you been keeping busy besides watching the Dreadful Eagles on Sundays? I am really busy with a lot of things. I'm working now as an associate director of the Claire Smith Sports Center and uh, at Temple University. And basically, that is a number of different things. It's teaching students. We are also going to emphasize diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we want to be a thought leader in sports media. So um, I'm doing that. Uh, Let me see what else. I I just cut some commercials today for the Sixers. So I'm working a little bit with them. Uh, The Maccabi Games, also known as the Jewish Olympics every four years. So next summer is the next games. And I'm going to be bringing 14 aspiring sports media professionals to Israel to cover the games as you would the Olympics. And uh, right now I'm at the beach and I'm out on the deck of my condo and it's beautiful and I'm looking out over the bay and life is good, boys. Thank you for asking. (laughs) No problem. Thank you for coming on. uh, Just to tap on what Dylan said, thank you again for coming on. This is an honor for us to be. You got it. My pleasure. Um, So basically you've made every Sixers call I can remember. Um, so many great ones that literally. are literally in so many plays. Yeah, literally. Um, so many calls that are basically embedded in the plays that happen. Do you have like a favorite call of a play that you remember vividly that you would say is your favorite? I mean, there were a lot of good plays. You're, you're talking over 2,000 games. Of course, there were a lot of those games where, you know, I wish I could have turned the TV off at halftime. But, <laughs> you know, some of the games were great. They were unbelievable moments. Certainly some game-winning shots you could throw in there, a bunch of those. Uh, I remember Iverson's first game winner against the Indiana Pacers, the time he stole the ball against Washington and went in for a game-winning layup. That was pretty cool. I always say that my favorite game that I ever did was the 98-99 season. It was the lockout, and they played only 50 games. And the Sixers made the playoffs for the first time in eight years. They were a six-seed. Orlando was a three-seed. The Sixers somehow managed to split two in Orlando, and they came home, and the place was in an uproar. I, I, I guess they were hungry because they hadn't seen a playoff game at home in eight years, and also the Sixers were on the rise at that particular time. They had split in Orlando, so people were feeling pretty good. And I'll swear, uh, people, the entire crowd was on its feet from tip-off to buzzer. Iverson had a had an NBA record ten steals in that game. I remember. Matt Geiger almost had a fight with the late Chuck Daly, who was the head coach of the Magic. It was a wild scene. And uh, of all the games that I've done, that that was one that certainly stands out. 
super glad you mentioned the Iverson stealing the ball for the win. That was actually my first Sixers game ever. And I was so short at the time that everyone jumped up on their feet and I didn't even get to see him lay the ball in because <laughs> I was so little at the time. Well, you can see the play on YouTube and you can watch it a million times. <laughs> Absolutely. It was, a, it was an unbelievable play, the fact that on a critical play for uh, the Wizards, he was able to steal the ball like that and coast in and get a game-winning layup. Uh, the only mistake I made on the play was I was yelling, he wins the game, he wins the game. But he really did. I think there were like still two-tenths of a second to go. <laughs> and, you know, technically Washington could have taken it and, you know, tipped it in at the buzzer. But um, they did win the game. Yeah, they did. Well, all right. Over those 2,000 or so games that you called, you also covered a lot of teams here in Philadelphia for the Sixers. Are there at what, Do you have a favorite team, like that 0-1 championship run team, any years throughout the process? You know, now with Joel, do you, was there a team that sticks out to you that was just so much fun to cover throughout the year? So I'll take my entire Sixers fandom, which for you young guys goes all the way back to the first year the team had moved from Syracuse. That was in 1963. So I've seen some really good teams. I love the 67 champions. I know you probably don't know too much about them with Chamberlain, Greer, Walker, Cunningham, Jackson, Wally Jones, all those guys. Then the 83 team. I'm not even sure you guys were born even then, were you? Yeah, you no. guys are all after 83. I, I, I got t- I got T-shirts older than you guys, I have to tell you. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, that, that was a special team. I really loved, and I covered them as the halftime host, the uh, 90 Atlantic Division champions with Charles Barkley and Rick Mahorn and Percy Hawkins and Johnny Dawkins in the backcourt. That was really fun. Then, of course, the 2001 team, and I'll tell you what, guys, you know, I was I, I, I went to see the Eagles win the Super Bowl in Minneapolis in 2018. I watched the parade, and I don't think I've ever seen an outpouring of support for a team as much as I did the 2001 team. And again, I don't know how much you guys remember of that team, if at all, but people were flying these flags on e- either side of your car. You know, you can clip them on that uh, part yeah. that's, uh, you know, right above the door and leads to the roof of the car. And People had usually one and sometimes both. And I, I swear every second or third car in the entire Philadelphia area had had one of those uh, flags flying by the time we we got to the finals that year. Oh, so, Mark, once again, thank you for coming <laughs> on DSM Media. I have to say it myself. It's 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 a pleasure to meet you. It's an honor. Um, as far as those flags, I actually had the flags on my car last season so in the playoff run i had those flags on my car i was really enjoying that um just to kind of piggyback off what dylan asked you i i wanted to ask you you know is there any favorite coaches or players that you got to interact with that really just stick out in your mind and you kind of maybe miss those interactions or just you know vividly remember so i remember as the halftime guy and i go back to 82 83 my first year was the championship year Julia Serving, who was class personified, he always had time to answer questions. He was always very gracious. You know, you would get done an interview with Doc and you would swear that he wanted you to come over his house and eat dinner. I mean, he was that nice, that accommodating, that friendly, engaging. Charles Barkley was always awesome. And the great thing about Charles was his quotes after a game where he was always one to speak his mind, as we've seen now in the studio, how great he is at that. Iverson, just sheerly for the way he played the game, in that I don't think anybody 
before, certainly during his time in the league. And I don't think anybody ever will play the game the way he did. Six feet, maybe, 165 pounds, maybe, taking punishment like you wouldn't believe. And then today's team, uh, Joel Embiid, in an era where uh, there's a lot of emphasis on guys who can create off the dribble, guys who are twos and threes and, you know, can make things happen in those ways. Uh, he has given us the return of the big man. And he's been a delight to watch and follow and get to know. Obviously, I've left that train now and they move on and I'm on to other things. But while I was covering Joel, that was a special time as well. Well, you mentioned a couple of different eras there. Do you have like what favorite era of basketball? Um, like, would you say you covered? So I'm old school like that. I think the 80s and 90s were kind of like the 50s and 60s in baseball considered, I guess, the golden era for that sport. I think the 80s and 90s, uh, whether it's Jordan or Larry Bird or Magic Johnson or Carl Malone or John Stockton, uh, these are guys who were just remarkable players. And it was still the time where when you were a young player, you didn't necessarily get carte blanche. There wasn't this sense of entitlement where I think players come in now and they think, all right, well, I've made the league, so now you know, I can easily be the man. That was not the case back then. Guys had to, um, you know, have, there was a certain amount of servitude coming off the bench and uh, doing whatever you had to do to earn your way into the lineup. Charles Barkley was a sixth man his rookie year. Of course, he became the star eventually. So I, I love that era. I think the skill set was, was the best. Although, as I say that, the three-point shooting by far is a lot better than it was in the 80s and 90s. But I kind of like the way that game was played, the inside out. And uh, I will always look back on that as an old school guy, as a great era in NBA basketball. So going on the road every season, was there like a city, an arena you kind of like mark your calendar for that you really enjoyed going to every year? I always liked San Francisco for the diversity, for the culture, for the weather. I just always had a great vibe there. There were certain arenas out west where people were really engaged, and Golden State Warriors is one. Portland, they, were, they really loved their, their basketball. One of my favorite arenas, actually, was where the Utah Jazz play, and I don't know what it's called now. Uh, it was Vivint Smart Home Arena. They may have changed it by now, but the arena is designed in such a way that it was really tight, and the fans were rabid. I mean, that's all they had in Salt Lake City from professional sports for the most part is the Jazz. They love their team to death, and they were really, really rabid. So I enjoyed that. Uh, Madison Square Garden back east, just because it's uh, steeped in history and the fans are, are really knowledgeable. Uh, Chicago, when the Bulls were really good, those fans were really into it, really rabid. And I love our building, especially now. It's sold out all the time. Our fans love the team. And of course, uh, you know, I'm a Philly fan, so I think that we're the most knowledgeable and best fans of all. Absolutely. But we did lose fans for a little bit a year ago, Mark. So when COVID did hit, what was the adjustment like to go from traveling all 41 road games and calling them in different arenas every year to calling it kind of on a TV monitor in the studio? So first, Dylan, there was that time period where we had nothing going on. We didn't even know that basketball was going to resume. Right. And so I'm thinking, uh, you know, am I going to have a job in March, April, May? Nobody knew. And then finally, 
when they resumed in July. It was really weird, not from the standpoint of doing games off of monitors, because I had done that before and I understand how you have to call a game off a monitor. But everything, and it had to be this way in order for them to finish the season, was so strange and so sterile. You know, the, the players were off in, in a neutral area. There was no home crowd. There was barely any crowd whatsoever. And it was something that uh, I'll never forget, just in terms of its sheer uniqueness. And then as, uh, you know, they began to play in their home arenas starting last year, and they had gradually were able to get fans in. My goodness, you had 3,000 fans, and it, you know, it felt yeah. like 300,000 fans. So, um, listen, it was an adjustment, but as I stated earlier, because I had no idea where right. life was going, let alone NBA basketball, uh, I was just thankful to be doing games. So even in the bubble, even uh, doing games off a monitor was fine. And by the way, it was really interesting how they set it up. They were so concerned about us having our own areas that were sterile that um, <clears throat> if you've ever been to Wells Fargo Center, if you look way up near the ceiling, that's where the hockey announcers sit because it's the yeah. best way to do a hockey game. And almost suspended from the ceiling are these individual boxes. They're about the size of, uh, you know, a master bedroom. And we each had our own box. So I could see Allah. He was across from me. Um, Jim Jackson would do Flyers games. He was on the other side. And it was me alone in this box. And, uh, you know, it was kind of cool, but it was kind of weird at the same time. So uh, that's another uh, circumstance, especially when, when they, they first went back to work in the bubble that I won't soon forget. So you mentioned, uh, you know, being back in Philly, Wells Fargo Center, one of your favorite places to be, obviously. Um, what was it like being the bell ringer on Friday night, being back in there with all those fans, um, but not as the play-by-play -play commentator, just there to enjoy the game, uh, just being back in there with those guys? Guys, I have to tell you, I watched video of it, and I almost don't remember being there. That's how overwhelming it was. You know, I first walked into the place – and I was there as a guest. And remember, anytime there was a Sixers game, I'd been working those games for close to 40 years. So anytime I was there, I was not a guest. I was covering it. I was an employee or whatever. So <clears throat> walking in and you know, getting a certain level of treatment from the Sixers, like an honored guest. And then I remember walking onto the floor right before ringing the bell. And I almost pictured myself like I was the subject of a 30 for 30 documentary. I don't mean to like build myself up here, but like I was walking in and I almost thought like, you know, there was this crowd behind me and here I am walking into this darkened arena and all of a sudden I could see the players up close and then there were the fans and then I would look up and, and the place was jam packed. And then when they announced me and the fans started roaring and going, zoo, zoo, it was just like, I was just overwhelmed. I had no other thoughts other than to just think, wow, this is for a kid who grew up in Northeast Philly, always wanting to be the voice of the Sixers. This is just an unbelievable moment. I, re I really couldn't comprehend it as it was happening. And then I just went out and tried to show a little swag while I was ringing the bell. And <laughs> before I knew it, it was over. And uh, the Sixers were on their way to a loss, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm glad you got to experience that, though, Mark. That, that was awesome for us to see that standing ovation for you. Thank you. Uh, during your career, obviously, did you have any like pregame routines kind of like that players have? I was always curious about that. 
in a sense, it wasn't like, you know, I had fried chicken before every game, <laughs> like some players might, you know what I'm saying? But I certainly had a routine. And the reason you have a routine like that is because you have to get yourself ready. It's almost like studying the lines of your script if you're a movie actor. So for me, <clears throat> I call it swimming in information. So I would have the internet. I would have an Excel spreadsheet. I would have game notes from a team, which is uh, bio nuggets and facts and figures that each team will prepare uh, before a game. And I would go through all of that stuff. Plus, you always have a working knowledge of the NBA, stuff that you would read in July, you would make a note of and say, okay, so when the Clippers come in, I'm going to take this note from uh, about Kawhi Leonard and put it in this file so when the Clippers come in, I can uh, reference it once again and, and put it in my notes. And then what you do is when you, when you, you fill out this Excel spreadsheet of all this information, it, it, it's good there for reference during a game because you print it out and you have it in front of you, but it's good to do it because you start to um, put it in your frontal lobe, as I like to say. So that's really key because when you're calling a game, then you can sort of recall this information in a way that's organic and makes sense for the viewer. So basically, that was it. I would get up. I would be swimming in homework the entire day, take a shower, you know, get in the car, go to the game. And then whatever pregame routine I would have before the game, eating or what have you, and then do the game and go home. God, Scott. So um, on on the game last night against OKC, we got to we got to hear Kate Scott uh, reference one of your most popular phrases uh, on a Danny Green putback, turning garbage into gold. Um, it just inspired me to ask you: You've gotten to meet Kate Scott. How excited are you for her to get this opportunity? And what can Sixers fans expect from her this season? And so on and so forth. I think for Sixers fans, the adjustment comes in two ways. One, I've been with them for a long time. So as you guys alluded to, yeah. I think, Matt, you may have said it uh, when we were first coming on, uh, that you can't remember a, a Sixers play without me calling it. So to spend your entire life hearing one voice and then hearing another, no matter who it is, you know, it could be Mike Breen for crying out loud, it takes him getting used to. That's the first thing. And then uh, you have a woman calling games, which is a first for Philadelphia. And along with Lisa Byington in Milwaukee, it's a first for uh, the NBA. And so you need to adjust yourself to that. But if you really just listen closely, and of course, I enjoy Kate not only from a fan's perspective, but from the perspective of a, fe a fellow professional, because I understand what goes into her having to get ready for a game and to perform, she is technically excellent. She is engaged. She has done her homework. She gets Allah involved. She is glib. She's funny. And her call is really just spot on. So knowing that she is that good, I'd like to think that it's only a matter of time and, and hopefully a shorter period of time where Sixers fans can learn not only to enjoy her, but to embrace her as one of our own. And hopefully before too long, uh, remember that she is now the TV voice of the 76ers. Yeah, yeah she's doing it. 
Oh, good. <laughs> I was no, no, you're good. You're good. You were going to say, I thought, I thought she's been doing a great job so far. That's, that's what I wanted to throw in there. So definitely happy for her. I'm glad you think so, Scotty. That's cool. Yeah. She's been awesome. Yeah. That's all. I was going to say the same thing as well. She has done a great job so far. Uh, but, uh, Zoo, just two last questions for you on this current Sixers roster before, um, you know, we get you out of here and don't take up too much of your time down the shore. What was it like to see the growth of Joel Embiid up close? You know, from the moment he was drafted, the kid out of Kansas, you know, kind of new to the game of basketball, all the way up to this MVP, you know, type level, this dominant player last year. I remember specifically the early years when he first came to town and he already was injured. So you knew you weren't going to have him for that first year. And then, of course, there was the issue with his foot again, where they had to do surgery yet again, and he would miss consecutive years. So you're sitting there during that first year saying, all right, the cast is off. You know, he's starting to walk around. He's on a treadmill. He's doing some low-key basketball activities. This is great. Hopefully before too long, we will see him. And then, boom, he has to have the surgery again, which, of course, turned out to be a good thing because he hasn't, knock on wood, had had any issues since. So um, just seeing him, once he got that cast off the second time and was able to practice one-on-one and then go five-on-five and practice, he was beasting then. And it just got everyone so excited because we knew once he started to play, he was going to be enormous. He was going to be just a a game changer. And so those two years, while they were frustrating, they were also very enticing because we got to see him develop during that time. And the one thing that I marvel at is the fact that he picked the game up on a lark as a teenager growing up in Cameroon. He came over to the United States. He was a, it was an awkward teenager. He only spent one abbreviated year in college. And then his first two years, he ended up missing. When you think of all those things he had been through and how late he came to the game and what it is he is doing now, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. All right, and, and last question based on this team. It's only been three games, but so far, uh, so good, aside from a late fourth quarter collapse uh, in game two. What have you seen from this new look Sixers team that sticks out to you? And what are your expectations uh, for them this season? I think they're starting to find themselves, or at least let me rephrase that and say they're in the process of finding themselves. And a lot of that has to do with the insertion of Tyrese Maxey into the starting lineup. I think Tyrese has been pretty good. I think uh, from that position with the way he plays, Certainly a consistent outside shot would be um, preferable. And also you have to remember his game, and Joel has the lane almost all the time, but uh, he is great on penetration. So the question remains, can they design their offense in a way that gives him more of an opportunity to do that? Um, I always look at the defensive side of the ball, and I haven't seen the defensive stats over the first three games, I would consider 10 games more of a trend than three games, but uh, they need to maintain their defensive identity. By and large, uh, certainly since Joel has come to Philly, they've been one of the best defensive teams in the NBA. They have to continue to do that as well. All right, Mr. Mark Zumoff, thank you so much again for coming on. And just one last thing, because I've seen some comments about it. 
you've left your imprint in this city forever, and some of your phrases will be here forever. They're already being used uh, by Kate. Is there any inspiration behind them? Where did they come from, turning garbage into gold, coming in for a landing? Anything behind them or just off the top of your, off the top of your head one time, and it kind of stuck? So a couple of things. One, when you do 82 games, it becomes a grind. And when it becomes a grind, you find yourself saying the same thing over and over and over again. So what you try to do, especially as a TV announcer, because people can already see the action, is you want to try to craft at least some phrases to add a little fabric, to add a dimension, to add something to what people can already see. So what enables you to do that? Hopefully, in my case, I have a reasonably good command of the English language. And the way I was able to develop that was I spent 13 years as the halftime host. So I had to have a newly minted feature at halftime for every game. So that required a lot of scripting and writing on my part. And all of those reps helped to make me more comfortable with the English language. So when it came time to calling the games and to add something to my repertoire, well, I, I was pretty comfortable with um, similes and uh, acronyms and, and all, all the good English uh, vocabulary type things that help you to come up with, let's, we'll call them uh, zooisms as people have uh, come to call them. And that's, um, that's something that I, I'm happy I was able to do. It, it seems like people like them. And, uh, you know, if there's one takeaway and it's garbage into gold, uh, I'm okay with that because it's, to me, it's a very positive thing. I always say to people, when life gives you garbage, you turn it into gold. There it is. We got one zooism on the show today, guys. Uh, Mark, thank you again so, so much for taking the time out of your day to come on the show. We appreciate you. We miss you. And thank you for being the color commentator all of our lives. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah, you got it, guys. My pleasure. Wish awesome. you the best, Mark. Thanks. Thank you. That was cool. All right. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. Wow. Well, the nerves. The nerves can calm down. <laughs> Your stomach can feel better. <laughs> that's what it feels like to talk to a legend. That's That's crazy, man. Awesome. Yup. Great He's guy. Awesome. He Mark is a great Jamal. dude. Thank you so much for coming on again. But boys, we get to talk to hoops now. Oh, I thought you were about to say the Eagles. Do <laughs> <laughs> not bring that. Do not rain on our parade here. We'll worry no birds that. talk today. What is going on? I'm getting an Adobe Flash Player update. No, remind me later. <laughs> Don't do this now. Imagine if that would have happened then. Oh, my God, I would have freaked out. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jason, the nerves. The nerves were kicking in full gear for the last two hours of today. But that was a great interview. Appreciate everyone for watching, everyone that commented uh, throughout, and appreciate everyone that's going to watch uh, the replay on their own time. But, boys, no, Gint, we don't get to talk football or Eagles. We're going to talk some hoops that uh, we have not talked and spoke on the Sixers' first three games of the year um, as they start 2-1, and 2-0 and on the road. 0-1 at home in a loss to the Brooklyn Nets in heartbreaking fashion. I assume that's where most of our conversation is going to lead back to every time. Um, but but let's let's get to it. I'm I like what I see so far. Um, and what I'll say is I, I texted this to Scotty again. I want to get your opinion on it. Um, 
you know, I was out Friday night. I, I didn't see the ending of the game, but I know how it how what transpired and the collapse and what zero points or one point in the final five and th- minutes and thirty three seconds. And I know how it ended and and Doc with the lack of challenges and everything. But what I kind of took away is like before the season started, you and I again talked a lot about what are our expectations expectations for this team. You know, no one's thinking championship. No one's thinking number one seed. They can't compete with Brooklyn and Miami. And I mean, and Milwaukee. Now, don't get me wrong. Brooklyn is having its own issues and kinks to get out early in the year, as we can see, losing to Charlotte again. Um, But what I took away was, okay, the Sixers, as is, no Ben Simmons, no package for Ben Simmons back, beat the Brooklyn Brooklyn Nets ass for three and a half quarters, and then only lost by five points on a KD triple-double. Now, I, I know the loss itself is painful, and it's only game two of 82. Of, yeah, of 82, excuse me. But I came away kind of okay. Scotty, I think, agreed a little, to an extent. Gint, you're smiling, so I feel like you're going to take this a different direction, but go ahead. No, I, you're kind of right. They look good. They're 2-1. and one. There's not a lot I complain, but there's a lot of holes. Yeah, a lot of holes. And the, the challenge thing is so mediocre, in my opinion. It's something that... Yeah, we might have lost the second game of the season. Maybe if he would have challenged something, we might we might have won. That's not how you fix holes. What, okay, but elaborate. What what holes are you seeing so far? So the Sixers are going to get toasted by lead guards every team they play. Golden State, uh, Portland, Washington, teams with lead guards that who they've struggled with with Ben previously. They can't cover these guys, dude. Shea Gilgis Alexander was walking by Matisse Thibel last night. It, it, and don't get me wrong, Matisse Thibel is a really good like defender in the half court. He's a good five-on-five defender, but they have to find someone that can cover guys. And and then you still run into the hole of a secondary ball handler. I get it, this whole point guard first thing's been fun, but I'm over it. They lost Friday night because they didn't have a point guard, in my opinion to control any type of the game in any way, get someone a basket. They just didn't have it. Um, Danny Green's an anomaly. Like, one night he can't hit the rim. Last night he goes three for five from three. <laughs> Looks like he did last year. Like, I, that word anomaly dive uh, from TPL used it last night. I couldn't stop laughing when I heard him say it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I don't know, man. I just think the Sixers have a lot of holes. And holes can be covered as the season goes on. I'm not sitting here writing the Sixers off game three, but – um, those are the biggest problems I see so far. Yeah, I mean, and I see the comment and beads leading the team in assists shows a whole. I mean, you're right, and it alludes to the last five minutes, like you said, getting fine, like just having someone that can set up an offense in the half court down the stretch and get someone a bucket. Uh, but Scott, go ahead. Um, what do you think about Gint's comments? Um, and and my initial statement. Uh, no, I mean, again, spot on, especially with the guard situation as far as defending them. Um, even Nikhil Alexander Walker torched us um with new orleans now we ended up blowing them out obviously but nobody could guard him and you know i he is going to be a very improved player this year but should he be torching us you know on opening night um then you went to you know they the thing about the nets the the nets game was kind of crazy because you you wonder what Kyrie could have done in that game um but james harden actually really hasn't looked like himself to me in reality um so i'm taking that with a grain of salt um as far as the holes Gantt mentioned, uh, I, I look at, you know, the coaching as well as, a, as an issue as well. 
um, and just the whole closing situation against Brooklyn because they haven't played really anybody outside of Brooklyn, right? You know what I mean? They played OKC, New Orleans. They're supposed to handle them. They're supposed to win by double digits against those teams. So I think this week is going to be interesting where you see them against these teams in the Eastern Conference that aren't necessarily contenders at the level of Brooklyn, but they're right in that five, five to eight seed, you know, pack. You're talking about the Atlanta Hawks. We play, I believe, on Saturday, play the Knicks uh, tomorrow, I believe, um, in Madison Square Garden. And they've been, you know, very live in Madison Square Garden. Um, those are going to be the games that are very telling, how, how we can handle te- those type of teams. Um, obviously, it was great to see them dominate the Nets over the course of three and a half quarters. The Nets got some glaring holes themselves, you know, as far as Claxton it being a starting center. I, no way um, that he's going to be able to handle Embiid. And the thing about that game, Embiid was obviously hobbled. Um, so I take that with a grain of salt as well. But the worry comes at the end of the game where you see Tobias Harris play so well in the first half, disappear in the second half. Then you see down the stretch, everybody, nobody wants to close the game, right? You see Doc Rivers take forever to put Embiid back in the game for Drummond. It's all these reoccurring things that happened in the playoffs yeah. that kind of bother well, me. Well, Tyrese Maxey in the dunker spot, yeah. it's, it's bothersome in that sense. So I think that was the biggest thing that I took away from a negative. I think that's the only type of negative I have um, outside of the holes getting alluded to is is the coaching so far by Doc. And getting you right, like they might not beat Brooklyn if Doc challenges those calls. But when when you hear the outroar and out and the outrage from fans about not challenging, and then you see the NBA come out and say he should he would have won those challenges. And my whole point is, yeah, maybe it doesn't change the outcome of the game. But there's a minute left. What are you saving that challenge for like on a play like that? So whatever. And then Scotty alludes to the fact, I think that's the biggest thing is we're not too far removed from the Atlanta series and the pain and what comes up yeah. and blowing leads and down the stretch in a fourth quarter and Toby not showing up and coaching. And the second game of the year against the team that, dude, what did I tell you last week? Don't let them beat Brooklyn. And they almost whooped Brooklyn's ass for four quarters. Like yeah. I would have been, ex- I would have been going off today, <laughs> but they didn't, and it kind of reared its ugly head again. Now I'm not saying that's going to keep up, but it just showed the same lack of, lack of you know accountability. I guess the lack of learning from your mistakes from a coaching perspective. Doc wants everyone else to hold themselves accountable. You got to hold yourself accountable first, uh, Doc. Well, but I want to get to the more positive side of things. Yeah. Um, Joel Embiid, you know, obviously gets hobbled game one. He. Scotty, you and I have had multiple conversations about it. I'll do that another day. But my man needs to stop going in the lane um, with reckless abandonment um, and stop hunting down block shots when you're up 13 with three minutes left and almost bend your knee in half. I don't need to see that anymore. There's no point for that. (laughs) But he has played really – like he hasn't gone off for 30 and 16 or you know what I mean? But he's played really solid all around basketball. He hasn't had to do too much. He hasn't had to play too much through the first three games of the year. And they're two and one. I like that. Seth Curry obviously comes out 23 points in the first quarter last night. Unreal from deep. He's averaging, what's he averaging right now? Like 18 and a half through three games. He's shooting he's over 90% from three. He's averaging 20 right now, 76.5 from three. Yeah, like he he has been, he has been lights out. Uh, but the bench is something I want to have a discussion about. Again, three games, two really, really bad teams, right? So take it with a grain of salt. But it's really refreshing to see scoring off the bench, shooting off the bench, 
And when the bench comes in with a second in the second half with a lead, they not only don't diminish that lead, they extend that lead. I saw it in New Orleans. I saw it in OKC last night when we got off of Eagles aftermath. They come out late in the third quarter, early in the fourth quarter. It's an eight-point lead. The Nets, uh, the six, the Sixers bench go out and extend it to seventeen. That's really refreshing. George Niang, love the fit so far. Point guard, point guard Ferk. I don't know how long it's going to last, but it's working better than than years past with Ferk. So those are my positives so far through three games. Um, Even against the Nets, the bench did extend the lead at one point. So that it, they have been impressive so far. Drum, Drummond has looked very good um, in the two games that he's played as well. What's up, big head? Hey, <laughs> from class. I had to stay solid for my guy for the for the zoo uh, for the zoo um, interview. But yeah, guys. So th- <laughs> those are my those are my positives. Again, any any positives that you've seen on your own um, yeah. or going off the bench? Really want to pick you off, pick you back off the bench because pretty sure plus minus is that the team so far. The bench has been the best on the team, but kind of running devil's advocate to it is the benches we played thus far have been lackluster. Even Brooklyn's bench with they have heavy names, but they just haven't played well. Paul Millsap hasn't played well. Lamarcus Aldridge actually played lights out on Friday night. Yeah. Just, <laughs> dude, you want to talk about like doesn't miss from 15 feet? There it is for you. But um, the bench has been solid, and George Niang was the one guy I really want to highlight. It's so cool not seeing Mike Scott. Being <laughs> <laughs> a productive stretch for that is just making everyone's life easier. He even hit. A huge, even though I don't know if there was ever in question if we were going to win last night, but they cut it to like six at one point four, and I'm pretty sure he drilled a three from yeah. made that kind of like yeah. really turned the wheels again. That kind of put the thing out of reach. But the bench has been solid. Um, I'm really excited to see Shea get back because, like Dylan alluded to, first looked better at the point guard spot than he did on the wing, but I'm over it. Yeah, <laughs> I need a ball handler in the second unit. Um, <laughs> And then even yeah, just a facilitator off of this, off of the bench. Yeah. Um, but what I'm going to ask you guys, and it's like I said, I watched the post game on TPL last night, so I just keep plugging them, even though I don't know. But um, it's getting to the point where you got to start making some decisions about Matisse Thibel, truthfully, because he is horrible on the offensive end. It, it, it's a gaping hole having him out there on the offensive end. It's getting to the point where it's like, a year ago, guys were like, oh, my God, trade Maxi before that guy if we're going to get James Harden. And now it's like to the point where it's like, I don't know when he's due for money, but sheesh, you got to start thinking about maybe moving this guy. Because I, I like him, and he's, he was second-team all-defense last year. And I know we're weak defensively in terms of personnel as is, but he's killing me on the offensive end. He's killing me. I'll let Scott go first, God. Um, you know – it's, it's really just the – I don't know. For Matisse, it's like at the same time, I just don't even know where he fits on the offensive end. You know what I mean? Like what what does he do, you know what I mean, on the offensive end? It's like you don't want him out there shooting five three-pointers a night, but it's also like he just is just out there on offense. I, I, listen, I mean, I did see him last night in the corner, put the ball he on the did floor, hit the step back and hit a corner three. So I don't but know. See, those are – that's a that's a great point you bring up. Those are the games where he needs to do that more. Like against OKC, against New Orleans, go ahead, dribble, shoot a three off the dribble. You can do that against New Orleans. You can do that against those lower tiered teams. Um, so I, I definitely agree there. Um, we need to see some sort of improvement because his defense, his his defense is what we're going to be need in the playoffs. 
I mean, we're going to need it so bad. You, you've already mentioned the guards that have torched us. Um, he's our best defender by far, but he's a liability on offense, and that's what creates these scoring droughts that we saw like against so, Brooklyn. So let me ask you then. Obviously, they're 2-1, and one, so the starting five has looked good, and I, I'm giving praise to the bench unit. But, Gint, going based off of what you said, and, Scotty, you just said scoring droughts, you know, when he's on the floor, and that's kind. That's also kind of who's around him. So when it's him, Ferk, Drummond, would what we've what we've phrased and put out there before the season started, him being plugged into the starting five, not being asked, would my I guess my point is he wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb offensively if he was in the middle of Tobias Harris, Seth Curry, Tyrese Maxey, and Joel Embiid. Does that solve anything for you again, or is it regardless he's not good enough offensively? I like the idea, but who do you put him in the starting lineup for? Because you can't put him in for the flamethrower that's shooting 90% from three. Yeah. And obviously, Joel and Toby ain't going to the bench. Danny Green, I don't ever see him moving to the bench at this point unless you somehow brought in, I don't even know, two wings that were more than capable of being better than him. And then Matisse definitely don't need him handling the ball in the first unit, right? So it's like I, I just don't see where it would be right now. There would have to be a move made where a ball handler was brought in like obviously we love the name Dame, like one of like a guy that's gonna be run the first unit and then you can even expenditure some less offense on the because the offense right now in the starting lineup needs Seth, needs Toby, needs Embiid, and it needs Danny Green not to huck four air balls in the fourth quarter <laughs> for Archer, but I don't see where he could get plugged in right now. Right. Yeah, and I'm not honestly I'm not a huge fan. Like I I want him to start over Danny Green so bad. Like I just, it, it makes sense on the defensive end, but at the same time, I really don't want him on the floor with Maxi as well. Um, you know, as far as you're talking about, you want the floor spaced out for Dwell and B, Tobias Harris to work in the post, putting Tyrese Maxi who's shooting 25% from three right now. And then putting Matisse out there who just won't shoot or, you know, never seems to be involved on the offensive end. Um, I just don't like that right now. You know what I mean? I I feel like in the perfect world, honestly, we would put – I don't know. It's such – it's so weird because it, it's like getting mentioned. It, there's so many holes. It would be a different story. Because like, I want I want Shake Milton, honestly, in the starting lineup with those guys instead of Maxie. And I want Maxie on, on that second unit as like a six-man spark plug. Because um, just what I've seen so far, Maxie has been really effective – when he's with those those other guys, when Joel Embiid isn't you know holding the ball in the post, when Tobias Harris isn't isn't on the floor, so I like when I get to see Tyrese Maxey in attack mode with guys like Cork Maz out there drumming, um, well, those guys. I'll tell you what I've seen through three games as well when it comes to Tyrese Maxey um, in, in penetration and getting to the bucket. He's getting calls early on yeah. this year that he didn't he's get done. last year. How many times did we see you know late down the season or in the playoffs? Tyrese Maxey drive to the bucket, get railed at the rim, <laughs> all you know into the into the into the basket underneath, but into the fans, no call, get up, going the other way, five on four. He's getting calls. He's finishing at the rim through contact this year. So again, another positive. Um, One thing I love that Zoom Zoom like called him out. You know, personally, we didn't even have to ask about Maxey. Yeah. He really came out and just put Maxey on the forefront there. And uh, you mentioned the penetration, the aggressiveness, attacking the lane, the floater, man. That That is just so, so key when you're playing with big guys like Drummond and like uh, MB, being able to have it in your arsenal to just float that up in the lane. Um, 
if he can just, I, I thought he's, I, I feel like he's been very wise with his shot selection as well. He's not really taking shots from other guys that should yeah, be shooting. Yeah. He's very passive to Seth Curry, which is a good thing when he's out there with that starting unit. One thing I want to mention about like shuffling around lineups right now, Danny Green, second, you would be the worst fit in basketball history. I think <laughs> you want to talk about just no one being able to make a play for him. <laughs> Seriously. It would be Ferk. Danny Green, George Niang, Andre Drummond, Isaiah yeah. Joe. It would be rough. Isaiah Joe. You wouldn't get a clean what, look once. What are your thoughts on Isaiah Joe so far uh, through three games? Because he lit the preseason on fire, and he's come in, and he he is he has struggled through three games. The preseason um, was cool, man. Was <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I was excited. Like, so you want to talk about a shift, right? Like, he comes in, lights the preseason on fire, and I'm like, oh, see you, Ferk. And now here comes Ferk, and I'm actually – I'm enjoying watching Ferk on Cork Miles on the floor – now should, good should be for about like ten minutes a game, eleven minutes a game, no more. Um, but he's he's playing good ball, and Isaiah Joe's struggling. Yeah, Isaiah Joe's preseason, the twenty twenty one preseason was like Markel Fultz's freshman year. Watching yeah. him, it's like their peak. <laughs> it's kind of done. Man. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something though. I through three games, the one I've been most impressed with. You guys like, you know how I always get on people like in the city for you know loving guys that just. They're like just and eh, like the city finds ways to love guys that just don't deserve it. I love the George Niang fit and how he's looked so far. Um, it, you know, off this bench, I'm I'm falling in love with it already. Yeah, Yang Yang's been he's been fun. We we've needed a stretch four off the bench for how long, for how many seasons now in a row? And it's like oh Mike Scott again. Mike Scott Mike Muscala was a fun project, right? Like every and it's now you get one. And he's just like a flamethrower off the bench. And Dude, he just, when you hear someone like him, remember what Kai Carlin said about him last Monday? He just understands the game. He knows where to be. You kind of focus on that when you hear it from someone like, you know, that follows the Sixers so closely. So now I'm watching Niang around the floor as the ball is moving and it just sticks out. He just knows where to be. And when he's open, he shoots the rock. Picture that. Niang needs to close games for the Sixers, especially in tight games, especially against a team like Brooklyn that's bigger. Like, they don't have little guards. They don't have Isaiah Joe – oh, not Isaiah Joe. Tyrese Maxey and Seth Curry size guys. Like, the way Danny – especially the way Danny Green was playing on Friday, which, I again, that's not a Danny Green performance. Danny Green was very good last year. He was more than missed in the second round. But, I mean, there's a world where Maxey might not see some burn in tight games down the stretch because – he has to play, dude. He, next to Joel Embiid, this guy is everything the Sixers have needed since Joel Embiid stepped foot on the court. But obviously, they don't play a ton together with him being on the second unit. But he stretches the floor, yeah, fifty-five feet. Um, so yeah, I, I love George Niang. So who would, your, who would your closing five be? Again, Joel, Seth. It all depends Niang. on who plays. If Danny Green's having a good game, Danny Green, Seth, Tobias, Niang, and Bead, and because, dude, the way the fourth quarter offense is run and Doc hasn't changed it, Joel Embiid touched the ball on the block a ton. There isn't a lot of movement. It's not a lot of it's not a lot of pick and roll for Tyrese Max in the fourth quarter. It doesn't seem so. Not to sound naive, but where does he fit there? Like we saw him in the fourth quarter against Brooklyn standing in a dunker spot like, like Scott yeah. did too. So love the kid, but where does it fit? Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, the thing about Danny Green where – 
I, I think, and I just hope that Doc recognizes it at some point if it is happening, because there just might be nights where Danny Green just is not it. You know what I mean? Like against Brooklyn, he racked up a bunch of fouls in the first half. He came out, he hit what his first two threes, I think. See you later again. Oh yeah, the dip. I, I have no idea. But no, I you know it's it's like one of those things where over the season, I hope Doc starts to recognize if. It's not Danny Green's night if he's not out on the court. <laughs> Welcome back. Danny Green's shot my computer out, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like, Danny Green is old. You know what I mean? For him to be sitting around for a whole game, um, not out there keeping his legs warm, I think in those situations, that's where you should see Yang. You know what I mean? Um, where he can close out the game. I have more confidence in that game and Yang in that corner, you know, with those three-point shots. Um, the other thing about Yang is uh, his personality. I know we don't like to talk about it without the presence, but I think he brings a toughness to the team that we just really haven't had. He plays defense really hard for being, you know, that catch and shoot guy, that three and he can be a three and D guy for the Sixers and um, the quick release. I mean, that's the difference. Yeah. A lot of guys, he's not afraid to shoot it either. You see some of these guys, Seth hesitates sometimes. Sometimes Seth is just on full green light. <laughs> and then sometimes you see him pass up shots, and it's just like, what the hell? I was shooting 90% from three. I'm not kidding. The first possession I touched the ball, I'm shooting it from 45 feet. <laughs> Seriously. Like, it said he no the green light at all times. It said no one else is seeing the ball if I'm Dude, shooting I'm not kidding, from three. Like, 90%. So here, here's, I guess, a, a good wrapping up point here because we've kind of dove into – players one through 10 on this roster right now. <laughs> um, and it, there's been a lot of positives, some negative. Seth Curry is obviously a major, major positive right now. To what extent can he keep, not, not this up, but, but what do you think his ceiling is like? Do you think, you know, we're just kind of seeing that Atlanta series. We were like, wow, Seth's got more in his bag than we realized. He can do a lot more off the dribble than we realized. And you're seeing it through very early on in the season. To what extent is his ceiling? Like, how much of a workload should we should he get this year? Is more Seth Curry better, or is you know in a role with Seth Curry better? So you're again, you keep bringing up the Atlanta series. It's perfect. The playbook is bogged down. <laughs> it's a lot of three guys touching the ball with not a lot of movement, not a lot of other touches to say that. Um, so I mean. Until this Ben thing goes down, whether it's he inserts himself back in the lineup because, I mean, all we've heard so far is good. I mean, not not so far. But, Since Friday night is good yeah. things. It sounds like eventually he'll be back. Joel addresses the crowd and says, accept this guy back. We're accepting about Tobias goes to Twitter. Tyrus Maxey goes to Twitter. So until that happens, he's not going to shoot 90% from three. That That's just an anomaly. <laughs> that's, that's like seeing Bigfoot. But uh, he's going to keep getting the same amount of touches – Embiid's going to get the same amount of touches, if not more. And Tobias going to get the same amount of touches. Now, these other guys need to find a way to be effective. And, it's like, again, I keep addressing it because I can't stop thinking about it. Like, Danny Green, you cannot chuck four air balls. Yeah. It's, like, that, that shit hurt to watch. Three, uh, they don't, there's a world where three and out if Danny goes two for four from three. <laughs> but instead, he shot four of the worst jumpers ever. So, ceiling-wise, with this group – you're probably pretty much close to it because, again, you're not going to keep up this right. pace. He's a right. human being. But it's been awesome. Dude, the dude just does not hit the rim. 
the first shot I, I took him over two and a half threes on friday night the first possession of the game he drills a 35 footer nothing <laughs> man i was like oh my god <laughs> let's go easiest thing ever no but I, I like that you brought up uh the joel Embiid, uh you know speaking to the crowd because i think that was one the one thing i took from that is if joel Embiid speaks you listen, you listen. Right. Like if he says that Ben is back, if, if Ben needs his time, have his back, I'm going to have Ben's back. And that's it's as simple as that for me, because I know Joel and B gets the city. And if he's saying that, that means that he was able to get something done in that conversation with Ben. Um, and same with Tobias, obviously. So um, definitely love that. And and I think, you know, as Philadelphia fans for now, until Ben gets back, just let let it ride. You know, we don't need to talk derogatory about him. We don't need to diss him. Um, he's obviously dealing with some stuff, and I, I, I take that. I take Embiid's word on that. Well, um, I think it says a lot about what was what got accomplished in whatever. Yeah, you know that conversation was because when you go from early last week, I'm not a babysitter. I don't care what that man does. Blah blah yeah. blah, blah. They have a conversation. He addresses the Wells Fargo Center sold out to say he has his yeah. back. Something got across there. Like maybe it was just yo Ben finally held himself accountable. That's all I've been wanting. Let's move forward. I don't know, um, but something got accomplished in that in that talk. Yeah, absolutely, Dylan. That was the best way to word that. Yeah, I, I, I thought it got accomplished, and um, you know, with Embiid, it's like you said, Dylan. Embiid's not the type to like bullshit us. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't go out there and say that. You know, just exactly for, for shits and giggles, like. And B's not going to go out of his way to do that. So for him to step up in front of the entire Wells Fargo Center on national television as well, um, it, it was monumental. And, it, and, you know, Ben has to look at that and be like, man, maybe I should go back and play. Maybe I can go back and play with these guys. They do support me. Maybe they, they do love me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, it, it was great. It was I great. It was like a, like a ploy either, like the front office saying, yo, Joel, go say this. Yeah. We'll yeah, pretend. maybe this will. Be I don't think he would do that. I no, really this don't. was like it didn't feel like that. Whether we're gonna be boys or not, like we got to go out there, yeah, do our job. We'll see what happens in two months, whether you're here or not. But for now, like let's just win because exactly. Here, here's my final message on the whole Ben thing, uh, with with what was said and and whatever he's dealing with. A, I I don't know what's going, what he's dealing with, what's going on, um, but you know when when you're when you're not clear-headed you can do that you can do things you normally want to do you can be a person you normally want to be so maybe some of the antics that you know transpired this offseason he just wasn't in the right in a in a clear mind state and this is what transpired also message for the fan base again we don't know the full story we don't know if everything's sincere whatever but you can't assume it's not in a world and, and at this day and age where you all want to preach on, on social media mental health mental health mental health but since you don't like somebody, you're still going to – no, no, you don't get to pick and choose. So Ben Simmons has something going on if he's dealing with him, if he's dealing with something. No more Mr. Softy shirts at the arena. No more F. Ben Simmons chance. Yes, did, did, did it come because of his actions? Yes. But now it's time to put that aside. Scotty, like you said, when Joel Embiid speaks, you listen. And if you're a fan of the 76ers and a fan of Joel Embiid, listen to what he said on Friday night. Let it go. And that's that. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is, if you if you're so, you know, pessimistic and, and just spiteful that you need context, 
think about what happened to this guy last season and what was going on with his family. I mean, it's not out of this right. world for him to have some issues going on right now yeah. um, mentally and with what happened in the playoffs. I mean, regardless of how the fans reacted, he played really bad even to his own standards, I'm sure. So, I mean, that's that's hard. In Philadelphia, at the end of the day, when we sit back with clear minds ourselves, we hear Joel Embiid say that we can recognize that we are harsh as hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are irrational at times. So um, you just got to take a step back, look at him as a human being rather than a basketball player for once. And that's it's, it's as simple as that. Yeah, man. All right. I think that's going to wrap up this spectacular uh, episode of the Faithful Fanatic Show. Thank you so much for everyone that tuned in. Thank you so much for everyone that commented all throughout the show. Um, and whoever's going to watch it, you know, on the replay, appreciate it. Uh, and of course, we are streaming to you guys live through DSM Media. So if you're new to our channel, go over to our Twitter at DSM underscore media. Hit that follow button. Head over to our YouTube channel, uh, our Facebook page, our Instagram, our TikTok, our Twitch. We are on every social media platform. So tap in, follow, subscribe, turn on notifications. And, of course, we are proud to be brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this ex exclusive offer. I can't speak today. 20% uh, off and free worldwide shipping with our promo code DSM at manscaped.com. Manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and an incredibly comfortable grooming experience. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. This upgraded trimmer includes a multi-function on and off switch that can engage a travel lock. And it also gives you the ability to turn the 4000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. And did I mention the wireless charging? The new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help battery length last longer. Get 20% off and free shipping with our code DSM at manscaped.com. Again, that's 20% off with free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com using promo code DSM. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Your balls will certainly thank you. For myself, for Scotty, for Gint, come hang out with Scotty and I on Scotty Talks NBA shortly after this. Have a nice night and go Sixers. Mm -hmm.